Welcome to This Week in Hearing, where listeners find the latest information in hearing care. Hi, I'm Bob Trainer. I'm your host for this special episode of This Week in Hearing, because we have some very important issues that need to be at least addressed and inform our listeners about relative to the new regulations in uh, over-the-counter hearing instrumentation. Today, my special guest is Dr. Tom Tedeschi. Dr. Tedeschi is the Chief Audiology Officer for Amplifone. Thanks so much for being with us uh, today, Tom. And uh, uh, now, and I know that, that, that you and I have known each other for longer than we want to admit to anybody in the group. Um, but most of, uh, many of our uh, colleagues out there don't know who Tom Tedeschi is. And could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and maybe uh, how you ended up uh, as the chief audiology officer at Amplifone, and then your role in the uh, development of the regulations? Because I, uh, you sent me some stuff a few, uh, a couple of years ago, even, and and I know you've been involved with these since their inception. So here we go. Well, well thanks, Bob, and thanks for having me this this afternoon. So a uh, little bit about myself. Uh, I've been an audiologist for about 45 years, and, uh, you know, when I first finished uh, graduate school, I started at a uh, children's hospital and uh, was the uh, head of audiology for a large children's hospital, and while there, I wanted to expand my roots a little bit, so started a small private practice on the side, uh, seeing adults, and that's when we uh, were just starting to do hearing aids as audiologists. And so uh, that blossomed. And over the next seven years, I went from, from the hospital to the private setting fully and uh, also started then teaching and doing some clinical studies. And Bob, you and I did some studies uh, back in those days together. And, uh, and so after about 22 years, I was approached by a startup company called Sonic Innovations at the time, and uh, where I left the clinical world and joined the industry side and became the director of tra worldwide training. And so then learned how to globe hop for the, the next 10 years and uh, built that company up and then was approached by Amplifone about 12 years ago to um, start out to head up one of their divisions at the time called Sonus. And I did that and we sold that division off. And later I then transitioned into the becoming the vice president of training and development for uh, Amplifone in the US. And from there, uh, hearing aids and the whole hearing industry started to get involved in politics. <laughs> I was kind of volunteered into that world and uh, uh, my role has changed and I became the chief audiology officer and started working on the political side and watching for the Amplifone in the U.S., all of our clinical work as far as audiology is concerned, et cetera. But also uh, probably about 75% of my work now is in the regulatory space, looking at all of the government regulations that are coming out and how we can shape that and work with that to in, you know, further the field of audiology. So that's pretty much my, my journey over the last 45 years. Wow. And, uh, 
you know, it's interesting that everybody, everybody has, all of us that have been around, will have our own little kind of, kind of road that we took and, and, and went maybe to the left or to the right or to the, to the middle and, and uh, backed up a little bit and then kind of went forward some more and all those kinds of things. And, uh, and uh, now um, we did uh, a, the Academy of Doctors of Audiology meeting at the same time. And during that meeting, you had a fabulous presentation on the over-the-counter hearing products. Uh, a little bit about where the regulation is, what we need to do, what kinds of things are in it to some degree. And, uh, uh, and I know here in a, in a minute or so, we're going to be moving to your actual presentation. I would also like to tell my, my colleagues in the audience that Dr. Tedeschi was the recipient of the presidential award from the Academy of Doctors of Audiology. And uh, for a lot of his work that he's been doing with the Academy, but also on the regulations. So um, without further uh, embarrassment of my old friend, Tom, uh, let's move into his presentation from the Academy of Doctors of Audiology on over-the-counter hearing regulations. The next point we'd like to talk about is an overview of the OTC regulation. This came out, um, let me see if, this came out uh, a week ago today. Uh, matter of fact, at 7.45 a.m. on Eastern time, my phone became a Christmas tree. And, uh, and so the, the regulation came out, and this is just a high-level overview of what it is. We're still looking at it. ADA's board is looking at it. We have attorneys looking at it. We have uh, all the other associations are looking at it. So we're trying to digest. It's like any other federal regulation, 114 pages long. How many have read it? Okay, there's a few hands. Where's Kim? Kim, I know you're here somewhere. I know your hands better be up in the air. And so, and there's Alicia. And so, yeah, it's, it's um, I now have gone through it a number of times. I have yellow, red, and green. My, my, uh, my copy looks like a Christmas tree and uh, trying to figure out, because every time you read it, you take a little different slant on it. And so, um, so we're all trying to figure it out first before we start to make a lot of comments on it. But first of all, the FDA is uh, proposing to establish a new regulatory, a whole new regulatory framework. One of, and I'm, I'm going to applaud the FDA in a lot of this because a great deal of this uh, is really shaping our industry in a different way as we go forward. And it's cleaning up a lot of things that have taken place, because if you remember, the last time the industry had a federal guideline was in the early 70s. And so this has been a long time coming. Um, so there's a, an established a new regulatory framework. We now will have two categories of hearing aids. We will have prescription hearing aids, and we will have over-the-counter hearing aids. So two new categories of hearing aids, and all hearing aids will fall within those two categories. The device types are not changing. 
So that means, you know, hearing aids today are either class one, class two, class three devices. And so that's not changing. And, uh, and also at the same time, the PSAP regulations came out because uh, they kind of float hand in hand. <clears throat> so the OTC and prescription, the difference between these two. And so the FDA is proposing that on the OTC hearing aid, these devices are to be for individuals with perceived mild to moderate hearing loss. That's the definition of the category these hearing aids are to work for. They are subject to technical requirements, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the requirements that have been given. Um, then they're, then they're under OTC, we have two categories. Now I'm Italian, so my hands start to work. And so we have OTC, and we have self-fitting OTC. So we have two brackets under the OTC category. Self-fitting OTC will require a 510K. 510K is a submission that you have to submit to the FDA to review your specifications of your product to see if there's a clinical studies that have been done to show that this product uh, meets the requirements of the FDA. Tradition then the other OTC side, the non-self-fitting, will not require a 510K as we understand it. And so the difference between self-fitting and the OTC is self-fitting are devices that the individual can shape, meaning they can change either through an app or whatever, the uh, tone, meaning bass, treble, if they can adjust the volume, uh, if they can move programs around, there's different parameters in there. That's self-fitting. And Kevin gave a nice, in his talk yesterday, Dr. Frank talked about the work that Bose did. And Bose was the one who established this self-fitting uh, category. And so today there's one hearing aid that sits in the self-fitting category, and that's the Bose uh, uh, self-fitting hearing aid. The OTC category will be devices that do not have that shaping capability. And so, um, so we're looking at that. Does that mean it can still have a multi-memory? Maybe. We're not positive on that. Uh, but it will be something that's not subject to uh, shaping for the patient. So that's, that is the... Uh, self-fitting and OTC. Also, under that category, anyone can sell that type of, it's over-the-counter. And so, um, so it doesn't have to be a licensed individual. Now, if we go to prescription hearing aids, which are the, most of the hearing aids that we fit today, this is a change. Today, hearing aids are classified as restrictive devices under the FDA. And now it's going to go into a prescriptive device. What that means is, which is great for us, as I, in my, I need to state, state this too, in my opinion, this is great for us because uh, it now allows uh, that you have to have a prescription, an oral or written prescription, to dispense a hearing aid. And that prescription can be given by an physician, an audiologist, or a licensed hearing instrument specialist. So, uh, but it is a prescriptive device now. And so these, these can't be sold just by anybody. Um, and so this, and this I, in my opinion right now as I look at it, it may help clear up some of our 
DTC ads and stuff that you're seeing on the, on the television and things like this. Um, and so that's the prescription side. You'll still have the same classifications, class one, class two, and class three as we have today. And, uh, and so that's, but it now makes it two categories. And then we have the PSAP guidance. And the only thing I'm gonna talk about the PSAP guidance is that PSAPs are intended for the use of people with normal hearing. And what the FDA has said is that they will police, so they'll really start to watch the advertising of PSAPs to make sure that they don't start, that they're not advertising that they are for hearing impairment or help you hear better for hearing loss. And so now the question will be is how well will the FDA really police it? And we'll see in the future, but now it's in statute. And so, uh, or eventually will be in statute. So that's the, that's the categories that we now will be dealing with is prescriptive hearing aids and over-the-counter hearing aids. Um, in 2017 is when the, the over-the-counter, the FDAR over-the-counter hearing aid act uh, was signed into law by President Trump. And at that time it was given three years. And there was four pillars that OTC devices were to have. The four pillars were affordability, accessibility, safety, and effectiveness. Those are the four pillars that uh, these devices were to look to, were to be uh, kept in mind. And uh, so we looked at that and we brought together the four major hearing associations. So we had representatives from the Academy, the Academy of Doctors of Audiology, the, Academy, the American Academy of Audiology, the um, American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, and the International Hearing Society. I was privileged to be part of that group. Um, the first meeting, I will tell you, was an interesting meeting. Uh, I didn't know if everybody was going to walk out after breakfast or, or what. And, uh, but, you know, to, to make a long story short, it took us a year uh, to write the consensus paper, but we all came together and it was a good working relationship that we had. We had a lot of discussions, we had a lot of disagreements, and, and, and finally coming to a consensus agreement. This consensus report was then, once the the, the, the committee had put our recommendations together. It was taken then to the boards of all four organizations where it was vetted there. And, uh, and it had to be approved by the boards of all four organizations before we released it to the public. And so in August of 2018, we released the regulatory recommendations for OTC and we just looked at safety and effectiveness. Now. How many have read the consensus paper? Okay, so go to the Academy website and read the consensus paper if you wanna have input on OTC. So I really do. And if you don't wanna read the 40 pages that it is, there's also a condensed version of one and a half pages. So at least know that part. And so what did we come up with? Well, we came up with five key points. And the number one, the first recommendation was that the FDA was to establish product requirements for over-the-counter hearing aid devices 
targeting mild to moderate hearing loss. That's the category we looked at because that's what was specified in the statute. And so we, we came up that to effectively and safely amplify a person with a mild to moderate hearing loss, and we used our definition of moderate as up to 55 dB, that 25 dB of gain was what we recommended and an output of 110 dB uh, SPL as measured in a 2cc coupler. And that was the definition that we utilized for uh, recommendation number one. Recommendation number two was to define concise, outside-of-the-box labeling appropriate for medical devices sold over-the-counter. We wanted to make sure that people who bought these products were aware of what they were. And so we, and we had a lot of amusing conversations about this because we said, well, you know, over-the-counter hearing aids, they could be in a little box like this. But how are we going to put all of this out of the, you know, outside the box labeling on it? So I think you'll see a little bit larger print and a little bit larger boxes. The third recommendation was what needs to be inside the box as far as labeling. And so, you know, if you buy... Uh, any over-the-counter prescriptive, um, or I should say over-the-counter medications or whatever, you see that when you open the box up, you get this pull-out that's like 20 pages long and in uh, 0.6 print type. And so we wanted to make sure, though, that in, inside the box that there were instructions. We wanted to make sure that this was also not used on children because it's recommended for individuals 18 and older and we also wanted to make sure that a user manual was included. The fourth recommendation was that we recommended that the FDA establish a new category as self-fit over-the-counter hearing devices. We wanted, to, we wanted the FDA to say that there needs to be a distinction between traditional hearing aids and these over-the-counter hearing aids so they don't get mixed up. And then the fifth recommendation was that the FDA, in coordination with the Federal Trade Commission, established strong consumer protection laws. Advertising and those types that come, come under the jurisdiction of the Federal Trade Commission, and unless it's a direct violation of something that's in the regulation by the Food and Drug Administration. So we wanted to make sure that the Federal Trade Commission was working in concert with the Food and Drug Administration, because that becomes very important. And so those were, our, those were the five recommendations of the consensus group. Now you can read in the consensus paper all of the scientific and uh, information that went behind this, because we wanted to make sure that as we made a proposal, as it, when we talked about gain, we talked about output, we talked about these five other categories, we wanted to make it that this wasn't just our opinion, but this was based on acoustic science, on you know, information from the World Health Organization, information from the National Institutes of Health, etc. So we wanted to have this with information behind it to support uh, what we were thinking. We also put in there minimum requirements technical requirements for the product. So we talked about uh, the frequency response. We also wanted, we talked about how smooth it should be, the, the input noise, et cetera. So we had a number of cat categories, because remember, 
the four pillars was, two of those were effective and safe. So we wanted to make sure that also, you know, we know that it takes seven years for an individual to, to get into, you know, amplification. So if somebody starts to dabble into an over-the-counter product, we, we hope that they will have a good experience that will lead them to then seek professional help uh, eventually. And uh, so we want to make sure that these products are, are good so, these pe so patients will have a good experience. Because what would happen if a patient had a bad experience with an over-the-counter product? Well, then they would say, you know, they could possibly delay delay getting help or they could or it could spur them on so there's there's a, there's a debate there but we wanted to make sure that at least these products were uh, good safe and effective so what did the OTC proposal do or the draft regulation so this slide shows you a side-by-side -side comparison of the federal the FDA proposal uh, versus the consensus paper recommendation and about 80% of the consensus paper recommendations were included in the FDA proposal, uh, the draft regulation proposal. So we applaud the FDA for doing this. Uh, the one thing that we, that was not included was the gain in output. And so for maximum output, we recommended uh, for the consensus paper was 110 dBSPL. The FDA has proposed a uh, output of 115 dB SPL or 120 dB SPL if you include an input compressor and a volume control. And so uh, that was number one. So that's one area where we um, didn't, they did not agree with the consensus paper. The second area was the gain. We wanted to keep this to the mild to moderate hearing loss, so we uh, included a 25 dB gain recommendation and the FDA in their draft proposal, uh, draft regulation has said that there's no limitation on gain. So they could have whatever amount of gain they would like to include uh, into that device. Now, the rest of everything else was pretty much lined up. Labeling was lined up, 510K pretty much lined up, so everything else, so that's the two things. Now the one thing I, I, I need to point out, and I'll see if that's in, um, is that the FDA, and I'll show you the time frame in a few moments, this is, we're now in what is known as the comment period. So if you agree, and you don't have, you know, one thing I would strongly recommend is that everybody comment. Whether you agree with it, you don't agree with it, if you agree with it, tell the FDA, thank you. You've done a great job and we applaud it and why you applaud it. If you disagree with any of it, say we disagree with this or we agree, whatever, but make comment because this is your time to get involved in the regulatory process. If you sit back and let the government take care of this, well then they will. But this is our time to shape. And I've talked to a number of FDA uh, people who have worked at the FDA and have been legal experts with the FDA, and the FDA does look at the comments. They will publish all comments, so it becomes part of a public record, but they will change if they feel that it's appropriate to change based on the comment period. So don't think that, you, you know, your comments are not really needed or wanted. They are very much. 
So the draft regulation utilized mainly the ANSI uh, Consumer Technology Association's uh, 2051 standard proposed for um, hearing aids and PSAPs. The association consensus paper was not referenced, but in saying that most of our recommendations were included in the findings. And, uh, but there was not a standard definition set for mild for, or moderate hearing loss, that one of the things we noted. And you know, one of the, one of the and I, I'm trying to give both sides of the scale. And so you know, one of the things that in the, the regulation says for perceived mild to moderate hearing loss, and so, but we thought that there should be a definition of mild to moderate. And, uh, but one thing you need to rec recognize also that this regulation, when it does take effect, will preempt all state laws. So if you have a state law that is in contradiction to the FDA's ruling, it will be preempted. But there is still, if you look at this, a lot of regulation activity that will take place at the state level. And so, again, you know, uh, I've heard it said many times on this podium, well, not this podium, but the podium at the ADA meetings, that, you know, we need to be involved in our state uh, associations also because there will be a great deal of things taking place at the state level. So, so what's our timeline? Let's look at the timeline for this regulation. So um, October 20th is when the regulation, the proposed regulation came out. We have the public comment period, which is now 90 days. It will conclude on January the 18th, 2022. Now, what's interesting, the FDA generally with most regulations, proposed regulations, has a 60-day comment period. So they've expanded it on this one to 90 days. As you know, it took four years in the making to make this regulation. Generally, it, you know, they were, they were by statute supposed to only take three years. The pandemic hit in there, so part of, that re, part of that delay was due to the pandemic. And part of it was due to, there was a number of preemption issues that they were looking at. And so that, so that made the, the delay. I think one of the things that helped speed this come out was President Biden's executive order that came out uh, in July saying that he wanted to have the regulation out by November the 6th. And so they beat that deadline. So, but they've increased the time period for comment. So you have 90 days till January the 18th, 2022. After that, the FDA goes into a situation where they will start to look at the regulation and they will start to decide they have 100, they can take up to 180 days, which we anticipate that they will probably do, uh, before the final rule comes out. The final rule will come out in September of 2022, and we expect devices to start being noted on the marketplace in uh, September of 2022. Those that may require a 510K will come out generally three to five months later. Uh, so more in the self-fitting category. So that's kind of the timeline. What the FDA is now is doing, they're in what is known as a listening period. So that means that they are just listening. They will not make any comment. Uh, you know, you, if, if people want to make an appointment with the FDA to talk to them, they'll listen. But that's about it. We, the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, looked at this before. Uh, and we did make comment to the OMB, uh, I, I did, uh, and in that session, 
it was a listening so they could ask questions of us, and, but we couldn't give only answers to the questions that they provided. So this listening period, though, for the FDA is a little different. They won't ask questions. They just sit there and say, thank you, goodbye, and, uh, and that's it. So that's where we are. Um, we're going to we're, we're try to get the consensus group back together over the next, uh, before the 90-day comment period. Just we're trying to make sure that we, again, try to speak united as a profession, because that means a great deal to the Food and Drug Administration uh, that we can speak together. So we'll, we'll start to bring the consensus group back together. We're giving all of the academies. I, because since, since I live and breathe this, I wanted to have the groups together within three days. And they all said, thank you, Tom. We appreciate your, your willingness to do this in three days, but let us have Tom some time to look at it. And so uh, I said, okay, how about five days? And so, uh, so, but no, but we're looking at it now and then we'll be uh, bringing the group together. And so with that, I'd like to now have a, we're gonna have a, sh a small panel discussion. Oh, one last thing. There is a website, oh, where'd it go? There it is. There is a website you can go to if you would like. It keeps disappearing. Uh, it's called, did I hit something wrong up here? Okay. Oh, just, oh, just flashing on my monitor. And so, okay. Um, it's called hearabouthearing.org. This is a website that you can go to. It uses voter voice. It has a direct link to the FDA's comment site. You can put in your comments, if you would, whatever comment you would like to give to the FDA. But it's a, it's a non-partisan, non I guess that's the word I want to use or whatever. It's just devoted to over-the-counter hearing aid regulation. And so um, if you want to use that, you please feel free to do that, hearabouthearing.org. And you can make that comment um, and submit that directly to the FDA during the comment period so you don't have to look up the, you know, the website and everything to go through. So that's just one, one avenue that is provided for you. Now, with that, we're going to have a panel. Discuss, a, a panel. So I'd like to invite up Dr. Alicia Spohr from the advocacy group from ADA and Dr. Don Hyman, your president-elect, and Stephanie Chayeski. And I know Stephanie's around here somewhere. If you'd come up and... Uh, We'll turn that time over to the panel. And they'll, they'll have some comments, and then if we have time, we will see if we can take any questions. If not, we'll be available for questions later. Thank you. Good morning. We all know I'm not a morning person, so I'm glad you get to see my face first thing. Um, my name is Alicia Spore. I'm honored to be your advocacy chair for ADA. I just want to say that, as Dr. Tedeschi mentioned, we've been working on this for a very long time. <laughs> um, and actually, if you've been at the OTC discussion that we had back in 2017 at Audacity when we had our panel, we spoke very much about how this could be a great opportunity for especially private practices who could sell devices to patients that maybe weren't coming into the office 
to those patients who just wanted that little bit of boost but didn't want to spend three or five or $8,000 on devices and how this could really move audiology forward much like optometry moved forward when they had reading glasses. So I personally was super excited to read all 114 pages. And yes, I have read the 40-page consensus paper multiple times as well, but I hope that Dr. Tedeschi has shown that there are some extremely bright lights coming out and that we can all benefit from that. So I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Hyman actually to talk a little bit maybe about some practice implementations and how we can look at this and get ready and move forward since we might have about six months before we start seeing anything come to market. And then I'm happy as always to answer questions at any point in time. So thank you. Do you mind if I just sit? Good morning. Um, I, I see this as an advantage for us all. I think it's wonderful that this statement position paper came out before we've all met because then we can all discuss together through the next few days. I see this as an opportunity for us to continue doing great care and to swerve if we need to, continue to do your diagnostic testing Give people a way to um, navigate the waters in a way that they feel like they can definitely keep trusting the individual and let them know this might not work for you or let them know it's okay if you tried something that didn't work because we got you. In our practice, we're embracing the idea of we are the clinician who is taking you through a long process that is more about the therapy and the counseling and the encouragement and being there with you as your ears change. And whatever products you bring us, it's okay. And we could do real ear measurement and find that it's not working for them. And we can help them into a better product. I do wanna say the one thing that bothers me about um, what the FDA came up with was that they forgot about um, the idea of locking devices, it was not included. And I, in my comments that I'm going to send is, is to say, hey, if we want easy, we want accessible, and we want it to be economical, you can't allow for the devices to be locked. So that's my position. And if you all have ideas, please suggest them. Also, discuss with your colleagues over the next couple of days of how we can embrace this. Because as time changes, if we say, well, I'm not going to change, we're going to end up like Blockbuster and Nokia, which we don't want. Thank you. Those are excellent points, Dr. Hyman. Thank you. Um, from a, a, a staff perspective, uh, as Dr. Tedeschi mentioned, um, I'm looking forward to working with my colleagues at AAA and ASHA and IHS to sort of analyze um, the proposed rule that the FDA has put forward in the context of the consensus paper that we did in 2018 to see where everything aligns and where there are deviations. Um, one of the areas that I think was not addressed in that um, original consensus paper that the FDA seemingly has done very, very well is to address some of the concerns that ADA has had about 
devices being restricted versus a clear delineation between OTC and prescription, and how in some cases that really impacts what goes on at the state level. So they've come out in this proposed rule to say, if it is not an OTC device, it is a prescription device, and for those, a licensed professional would need to be involved. And we applaud that, because for anyone who, who read the issue brief that we released last spring, you'll see that a lot of the challenges that, that people have with some of those state laws is that they're so nebulous and, and probably, in many cases, not currently enforceable. So it'll be very nice just to have a clear understanding of what's what. Um, and with that, the FDA has said in the proposed rule, too, that they're going to repeal all of those state exemptions uh, to preemption that they had made prior, except I think for one um, from California, which is more broadly related to, to, to products and not just specifically uh, to, to hearing aids. So um, I thought that that was fantastic. So if anyone has, has not read that, I encourage you to look at the, at the proposed rule. So we still, <clears throat> excuse me, so we still have a few moments left, and so um, we will take a few questions from yeah. the audience. I always am hesitant to do that, but. Oh, you better be when I'm up here. <laughs> I hear Amit, oh, there I see, okay, Amit, go ahead. I can, oh, I can hear you. You can hear me. All right. You, uh, you talked about the telehealth. Is, can you talk a little bit about the interstate licensure compact and how that might affect telehealth? Sure. I look at Stephanie. Stephanie's my best friend. And so <laughs> I think there's probably not a day that goes by that we don't talk to each other over the last several years, at least once or twice a day. And so, uh, so the interstate compact, the interstate compact, as I'm going to get my understanding and then I can get corrected from the panel. I think it's 15 states. Now we have 16, 15. So we have 15 states and that's what we needed. Uh, to get the interstate compact. And so under this interstate compact is that that applies to licensure and registration for professionals to work within those states. As it relates to telehealth, it will depend upon, as I understand it, it will depend upon, it's always, I, I become a politician and I, uh, from working on Capitol Hill so much, so I always, either state in my opinion or as I understand it. And so, as I understand it, uh, you will still have to follow the state licensure laws within those states that you're going to practice telehealth, but for licensure, you will have the ability to practice in those states or registered in those states according to their state license. So the compact is, is a great thing, but there's still some laws that you have to follow within that state. Panel, any other comments with it? That's exactly right. So um, the commission is actually in the process of being formed and will meet for the first time in January of 2022 um, to start putting together rules around that compact. And so the way that it's been legislated is that um, it's a privilege to practice. So for those states who participate and audiologists who participate in that, um, you wouldn't actually be licensed in all of those states. You would have the privilege to practice in the states uh, that are participating as you, you can select which states you'd want that privilege in. And as Dr. Tedeschi mentioned, you would be bound by their scope of practice in the state that you're practicing. 
I would add one thing, and I see Dr. Schmidt-Bauer and Dr. Cavett are up, so I don't want to harp on it. You would also be licensed, your actual physical licensure would be in your resident state, not the state in which you practice. So I'm in Maryland. I know Dr. Lumley is probably around here. She lives in West Virginia and practices in Maryland. Maryland and West Virginia have both signed on to the compact, and therefore, when this is formed, Dr. Lumley will be licensed in West Virginia and have the privilege to practice in Maryland under this compact. So it's a little bit different, but it will be based off of your home residential state. Thank you. And if somebody's, if anyone's interested, I can, if you send me a, I can send you the map. I have a color-coded map that I put together. And so, Dr. Cavett. Isn't there a question about, though, how is this going to be funded? Like, how is the compact going to be funded? And I actually heard this um, recently. I chair a licensure board around, it came to the board's question from this group wanting to talk about money, and we're not in the compact and probably never will be, but um, to talk about to talk about the money, where how is this going to get funded exactly? At this point, for the startup funding, I think there are some discussions among the professional organizations ar around that. Um, there is the intention that this will be self-sustaining after about three years. So w we don't know at this point, nor do we have like a final budget on that. But eventually, it would be a pay for as part of. Uh, for those who want to practice. So what would licensees, I mean, do they have any idea what that would no. look like in terms of cost? No, yeah. it's too early. We've really, they've really got to get formed. But they did come point. to our board in the, in, in the last week or so asking about money, even though we're not in the, com we're not in the compact. Yeah. Dr. Schmidtbauer. Uh, I'm going to want to go back to the regulate, the OTC regulation. The 120 output and no gain specification, um, do you expect that to change um, after the comment period um, to be revised more toward what the associations recommended? I'll go first. I don't know. I mean, the, 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 the answer is I don't know. The FDA has that authority to change before the final regulation comes out. Um, and so, you know, we'll wait, we'll have to wait and see on that. From a personal standpoint, I hope it does change the consensus paper recommendations. I think that would be, in my view, uh, that was what the professionals who really deal with hearing loss and with acoustic science came up with. And so, uh, but, you know, uh, the FDA is open, and that's why they have the comment period. And so uh, what does take place, we'll wait and see. So if you read the consensus paper, which I've done a few times <laughs> in the last week as well, we made a big deal, and I was part of that working group, full disclosure. We made a big deal about how it was very hard to put a gain number on. There's so many different ways of figuring out gain, and there's so many different algorithms and I'm not a manufacturer and I'm not a researcher, but we made a big deal about gain is really hard to identify. And when you make this number, you have to take into account these 18 other things. And then when the proposed rule came out, they took into account the 18 other things, 
but didn't put a gain number on. And so I actually wonder, did the FDA listen to us? Because we said it's really hard to put a number on the gain, but you have to look at distortion, you have to look at input-output function, you have to look at EIN, you have to look at all those different things, and ironically, the proposed rule has all of those things and no gain number. Interesting perspective. <laughs> yes, I can't see who it is, though. It's Kurt Kalise. I was wondering uh, who the FDA is listening to if they're not listening to us on these uh, proposed changes. Uh, so our organizations uh, represent the hearing impaired and uh, we have all the technical information that was provided to them. And so who else is providing something contrary? So there are a number of groups who weighed in on the, on the when, it, when the proposal first came, not the proposal, but when the law first was sent to FDA. And so we have the Consumer Technology Association. We have, you know, the different consumer groups. We have uh, individuals who have, you know, weighed in. We have the Hearing Loss Association of America. We have, you know, the Association of Retired, you know, AARP. So there's, a, there's numerous groups that have weighed in on it at this point. So uh, we were just, we were one that uh, we hoped were vocal enough, but we will see. Yes. Yeah, just to take that a, a step further for, for those of us who were under-initiated in this, to take that ste a step further, what does the panel look like? Is there an FDA panel of experts that are, that are, that had been put together to, to do all of this work at the FDA? Do you know what it looks like, who the members are? Yes. So the, the answer to that question is yes, the FDA does have a group. It's called CDRH. There's a group that fit within the um, ENT, it's called ear, nose, and throat uh, device category. So it's, it, there's, clinici there's audiology cl clinicians in there. There are acoustics uh, experts in there. There's engineers in there. And there's a physician, Dr. Eric Mann, heads that group up with that. And so th they do have a broad panel. We have met uh, the consensus paper. We had a we had a group that actually went to the FDA. We provided them with a consensus paper. We've met with them. We have met with them on a numerous occasions. And uh, so we have, I, I believe we have a good working relationship with the chairman of that committee. And uh, so, so yes, they do have an actual team that has been working with this from day one. Yes. My name is um, Dr. Strickland. I'm from Boise, Idaho. and. Um, I live in a real rural area over there in a fairly conservative state. So there's one company in that area. This is about the, the, the compact, is that what it's called? The impact, whatever. Um, so there's a company there that would like us to do some of their um, industrial audiology, and they have some like in Oregon, they have some in northern Idaho, some down in Nevada and Utah and Wyoming. So I neighbor all of those states. And then because I have family in Utah, I actually licensed myself there as well, um, just so that everything was on the up and up. It was fairly easy to get licensed there. I also um, did my rotations in Texas, so I continue to keep that license just because it's easier to keep it than to redo it, right? Same thing in California. I took a job in California before I started my practice in Idaho. So, I mean, literally, I, you know, I've got whole western states, you know, west of Colorado and Texas. So I, I just think that's interesting. What does that, 
<laughs> what does that mean? You know, does that apply? I guess I don't know all the ins and outs of that. So it'll depend on the states that are included. And um, Adam Haley, who is our state specialist, is over there in the back. He can help anyone who has any questions about their specific state. I will say that you still have a choice, just to tag on to what Dr. Spohr said earlier, you can maintain your licenses individually in the states where you're practicing. If you are not, you don't have to participate um, in, in the compact in that way, so you can still do that. And, and with that, um, because I want to be respectful for the time, for all of the things that are upcoming, um, I think we will have to defer other questions, but are happy to take as many as you have outside of outside of this session. Thank you, everybody.